Judah has pledged to take a bullet for his brother Benjamin. And it was a wonderful thing. It's a, it's a good, good intention. It's a good commitment to make. But he's not going to follow through on that commitment just on the basis of how honest he is. Or he, he's not going to follow through on this commitment because he just has stellar character. Because we know that he hasn't. He's got a rough past, frankly. It, it has helped him to, to know that he can't hide. He knows that God's going to bring it out some, one way or the other, other. So better follow through on this. But even that alone isn't enough of a motivation for him. He'll do it as an act of love towards his father. He'll do it as an act of compassion for someone else. Well, we've been in a series in the life of Joseph called God at Work When We Can't See Him. And we've been saying that we follow an invisible God and we've been called to walk by faith. But when we understand what the Bible teaches about God's working and his ways, it helps us to make sense of life when life otherwise doesn't make sense. This morning we're talking about when your good intentions are tested. And I couldn't talk about those times when your good intentions were tested without starting with a confession. I have a full can of paint in my basement. Uh, I have a full can of paint in my basement because I recognized that my kid's bathroom needed painting. And if you're going to paint a bathroom and if it needs painting, then going out and buying a can of paint is an excellent first step in that process. The problem is that the can of paint has been sitting there for several months now and I haven't gotten to the second step in the process. And I think you probably know what the second step is. It's, of course, painting the bathroom. I, I had good intentions of painting the bathroom. I still have good intentions of painting the bathroom. It just, I've been a little weak in my follow-through. And I'm wondering whether anyone else struggles with this in different areas of your life. Anyone find it's easier to buy a treadmill than it is to actually run on it? How many people have maybe... Uh, a yogurt maker. You, and you bought a yogurt maker one, one, one time and you fully intended to make fresh yogurt. Or, or maybe you have uh, uh, you, you got a, a pizza stone and you were going uh, to make homemade pizza or a pasta maker and you thought, I'm going to make fresh pasta every week. And, and you realize buying the appliance was the easy part. But actually making things with the appliance is difficult. And so you find your, your cupboards filling up with more and more appliances, but it's not like you're making more and more food as a result of all of these wonderful gifts. I, I found the same thing when I used to teach ESL. I, I found that I had many, many students who were eager to buy textbooks, and they were even happy to join classes. But I would tell them that for... An hour of class, you really need to put in about five hours studying uh, at home in front of the textbook, and then probably another five hours practicing what you've been studying in the textbook and learning in the class. But I found I had way more students that would buy textbooks and attend classes than would actually do the work to learn and uh, become proficient in a language. I, I wonder whether there's some similar dynamics going on in your relationship with God. 
in, in your faith? Do you have those good intentions that you struggle to follow through on? I find many people, you know, they, they, want, to, they want to do good things. They have good intentions of, of glorifying God, of reading the Bible this year. I, I ha- they have uh, good intentions of, of serving, of giving sacrificially. But often those good intentions don't move forward. People have uh, those good intentions that don't ever actually materialize into concrete steps of follow-through. If you've ever wondered, is there anything that God does to help us in uh, this area, to help us to grow in responding to him in these areas, then uh, today's passage is uh, giving us some help. It's about Joseph's brother Judah, and it shows us how, when we, we see how God works in Judah's life to where he started off with a good intention. He, he started off setting out to do something right, but when you look at Judah's past and his history, you think, I don't think he's actually going to follow through on this. You realize God can do things in our lives to help us to follow through on what would otherwise be uh, just intentions that didn't go anywhere. Now, to bring everyone up to speed, Uh, When we talk about Judah and we're talking about his brother, uh, Joseph, Joseph was the one that everybody and everyone else in uh, all the other brothers in the family kind of couldn't stand. His father, Jacob, treated him with favoritism. And uh, at a certain point, it was just too much for the brothers. They'd had enough. They threw him into a pit intent on killing him. And they were going to they were going to just do that. And it was Judah who stood up at that point and said, no, we shouldn't kill him. We should just sell him into slavery because he'll go away just the same, but we'll get some money. And, and so this is the kind of brother that we're, we're talking about. This is the kind of material uh, that God is working with. 20 years have passed since that incident. And last time we saw that uh, there was a crisis that had been brought on. Judah was trying to convince his father Jacob to now allow his new favorite, the the one who's even younger than Joseph, the the brother Benjamin, Judah has tried to convince his father to bring uh, Benjamin along and to bring him to Egypt. But Judah, uh, uh, Jacob was, was scared of doing that. He was afraid of losing the younger brother, losing his favorite. And so uh, Judah steps in with good intentions, attempting to persuade uh, the father, Jacob. And in Genesis 43, 9, we saw when he said, I will be a pledge for his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let, him, let me bear the blame forever. Now, that's an impressive intention, an impressive commitment. He is going to take the bullet for his younger brother. He's going to stand in the gap, and if anything happens to him, he said, my life is yours, I'm, I'm done, I will, I will, I'll pay the price. And, and it's, it's a good thing that he, that he offered to do. It's a good intention. But if I can't even take that can of paint and follow through on painting a wall, how on earth is this 
this brother Judah going to follow through on a commitment to essentially give his life for a brother who basically nobody really likes other than, other than Joseph. He, he's, he's been receiving the same favoritism that Joseph did. This isn't some, someone that he would naturally uh, feel uh, affection and, and, and love for. How is he going to follow through on that commitment? Well, if you turn with me to Genesis 44, we're going to see how he follows through on that commitment, or, uh, and particularly what God does in his life to help him uh, follow through in that commitment. And we're going to read in a number of sections this morning, but we're going to just start with verses 1 to 2. Uh, in the Black Church Bibles in the rack under the seat in front of you, it's on page 35. Genesis 44, verses 1 to 2. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. This is the word of God. Now here we're going to get our first principle of uh, following through when your good intentions are tested, and it is to uh, face what's kept you from following through in the past. Without going back and recognizing places where you have fallen in the past, where your good intentions have failed in the past, you are likely just to repeat them over and over again. Uh, there needs to be an autopsy, there needs to be a recognition of uh, and a willingness to uh, address those, those things. And, and so we're saying, face what's kept you from following through in the past. Now in verses 1 and 2, God has Joseph set up this elaborate plot. It is deliberately designed to, uh, to put the brothers in a very similar situation that they were with Joseph himself, but this time uh, with, Je- with Benjamin. With good intentions, Judah has pledged to protect his brother. And the previous night, we saw at the end of the last chapter, uh, Joseph gives the youngest brother, Benjamin, five times his huge portion of food. He shows favoritism to, to him. And we're thinking, oh, maybe the, this is where the, the, the brothers are going to jump him. And, and maybe this is where they're going to they're get at him. Instead, they seem to celebrate and eat peacefully. So far, so good. But now it's going to be a little bit clearer, a little bit more obvious, and it is going to bring out uh, something more uh, from their past and make the, the test that much greater. Here, Joseph will cast Benjamin as a thief and a criminal and give the other brothers an opportunity to say, well, we, we can't help, but we, we just, we, we can't help but get rid of him this time. Let's... Let's have him pay the consequences of his sins. We'll get rid of him, go on with our lives, and all will be good. So the, uh, the, there, there is this elaborate setup. In verse 5, Joseph Steward catches up with the brothers. He's, he's already put the, the, the cup in the sack. He catches up with the brothers, and he accuses them of doing evil. When they realize he's talking about a stolen cup, they act self-righteously. They are indignant. So much so, in verse 7, they said, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? 
Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? The implication is we're way too honest to do anything like this. And we're hearing this and we're thinking, well, you weren't too honest to sell your brother into slavery and then lie about what happened to him. But we're we're, we're recognizing they're they're having to defend themselves and and they're being accused of evil. And and in doing so, uh, they are overestimating how good they really are, uh, pretending to be uh, these moral, upstanding, good, honest people. And when you do that, when you overestimate how good you are, you do foolish things. And here, uh, they end up doing what people often do when they think about other people's sins and you don't think about your own sins. They are ready to throw the book at whoever stole this cup. They, they weren't feeling that about their own sins earlier, but they're, they're, when they find out, oh, if somebody's stolen the cup, he should be off with his head. He should, be, he should be dead. We should be away with him. In verse 9, whichever your servants has found with it shall die. We will also be my Lord's servants. Then, to increase the drama as much as possible, they go and make the search of all of the sacks. They start with the oldest, and they work dramatically down to the youngest. Is it you? No, nope, nothing in there. Check the next one. Nope, nothing in there all the way down to the youngest. Of course, it's found in Benjamin's sack. And they've just said that whoever is found with it should be put to death. And now everything is coming out in their mind. Everything has been orchestrated so perfectly to bring, bring these feelings uh, uh, of, of guilt about in their own mind. They can't help but think now of their other brother. They can't help but think of what they did those many years ago to Joseph, and it is there that their minds turn. They tear their clothes in mourning, uh, just as uh, their father Jacob did when he heard the news that uh, Joseph had been uh, killed by a wild animal those many years ago. They return to Egypt, and they feel the weight of their worst nightmare. All this time, they're pondering the regret of what they did. They're thinking about what they did to Joseph. They know that they didn't take the cup, but they can't help but think of what they had been guilty of in their past. Proverbs 28.13 warns, Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. When you live in denial about your sin, when you try to hide something, try to pretend that it's not there, uh, when there is sin in your past or your present, that you are thinking that it is somehow not going to be Uh, not going to be noticed, that you can live in denial about it, it becomes a weight upon you. It becomes something that that keeps you from from moving forward. It'll affect your good intentions. And so God graciously intervenes to, to help them to face that, to help them to see it. 
God in your life and in my life may graciously did what he did to Judah and his brothers. He forced them to confront them. But he did that because he wanted wanted them to be free of it. He wanted it to no longer drag them down, hold them back, keep them from moving forward with good intentions. You may have good intentions for your future. Maybe this morning you're thinking, I want to move forward with God. I, I want to do, I, I just, I want to live for him. I want to, to, to do something good. I think that God has put on my heart. And yet, if there is unconfessed, unaddressed, unconfronted sin in your past, it may, in fact, get in the way of those good intentions that you have. It may, in fact, be the thing that keeps you from moving forward, keeps you from acting on those good intentions, keeps you from uh, walking into the fulfillment of all that God has otherwise put on your heart. If good intentions are going to be more than a can of paint that sits in the basement, we need to be honest about what's, what's gone before us, uh, what, what has come, and, 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 and address it and deal with it, bring it out into the open. We ask ourselves questions like, what went wrong last time? What, why has this been hidden in my life rather than brought out and dealt with? Why has... Have I been unwilling to, to, to deal with this, to come to terms with it? It's only as you face that, be willing to address that, that you can move forward with your good intentions for the future. You're able to find the grace to move forward in the present. And the good news of the scriptures is that we're never alone in that. It's not us trying to figure out our own lives and God disinterested, dis- uninvolved, uh, we see that he is actually with us in the, in the moment, in the process, doing the hard work of helping us to confront these things that we would otherwise ignore. So the next principle comes out as this. Submit to the God who brings everything in- into the light. When you recognize that God knows all that is in your life, God sees all that is in your life, then hiding it from him or even from other people that you trust becomes more and more ridiculous. You recognize God sees that. For me to try to continue to hide that from him just doesn't make sense. If he is aware of what's happening in my life, and if I recognize sooner or later it's going to come out into the light, then I'm more motivated to cooperate with him, to work with him, to, to share it with someone else as well, to, to, to be willing to join him in uh, preemptively bringing it out, knowing that if I don't, he's probably going to bring it out anyway. We submit to the God who brings everything to light. Now, we've seen this many times before, Uh, We've seen this already in this series, but one of the things that we've said about ancient Hebrew writing is they will often place a punchline right in the center of a particular episode. And often what they'll do is to highlight what that 
punchline is you'll see repetition. A, a, a word or a phrase will get uh, repeated again and again to help you to, to, to highlight that because you know, they didn't have special typeset. They didn't have underlining. They, they, they needed some way. And, and in an oral culture where you're hearing stories, not just reading them, repetition helped do that. Well, one of the words that gets repeated again and again in, right in the middle of this episode uh, is the word found. It, it occurs uh, about eight times in the entire chapter and uh, in quick succession right in the center here. Uh, in verse 8, they talk about the money that we found. In verses 9 and then 10 and 12, it's whoever is found with a cup. Who is found with a cup? Who will be found with the cup? In verse 17, they talk about the man in whose hand the cup was found. But in verse 16, you get this climactic statement, an important statement, and like many of the important statements in this chapter, it's found on the lips of a man named Judah. In verse 16, he says, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. God has found out the guilt of your servants. He saw it all along. We've been trying to hide it for 20 years. We've been living in denial as if it doesn't exist. But God hasn't been fooled. He has been patiently waiting for us to confront it. But since we haven't, he's brought it out. And we can't, we, we can't avoid it any longer. There's a recognition of what's happened. But it's a curious way of, of, of phrasing this, isn't it? What exactly are they guilty of? They, they're saying, oh, you've got us. But... I mean, earlier they had been accused of being spies, but they know that they weren't spies. Now they're accused of being thieves and stealing a cup, but Judah knows that they haven't stolen a cup. He, he knows at least he hasn't stolen a cup. So what is it that they're guilty of? Judah, in making this confession and saying, God knows, uh, God has found, us, found out the guilt of your servants, He's recognizing God has unearthed what we've been trying to hide for the last 20 years. He has, he has brought out into the open this sin that we committed against Joseph, and he, he's doing so because he wants to help us move forward. We saw last time when they returned with money in their sacks, last chapter, uh, do you remember uh, they, when they brought it back, the servant told them, Oh, I didn't put that there. You, you, didn't, you didn't take it. There hasn't been any mistake. God must have put that money into your sacks. Now, they open up their sacks, and there's a silver cup in one of them. They're like, I, I don't think I took that. Did you take that? No, I didn't take that. The only conclusion that they can draw is that I think that God must have put that silver cup in the sack as well. That, that God has placed his finger on... Uh, their, their sin and orchestrated this to bring out into the open what they would rather conceal. And so you realize God has found them out. And the message for all of us is that's probably, God probably always finds us out. There is no concealing our things, or anything from him. 
Luke 8, chapter 8, verse 17 says, Nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. You and I often play games that get in the way of good intentions. We live lives pretending as if God can't see, God doesn't notice, God won't, won't be able to uh, do anything about any, any of these things in our lives. But here, we recognize he finds those things out. Often when we're hiding them, we do so because we believe we're better off with the sin. And God brings it out. He unearths those things in our lives that we would otherwise keep secret because he knows that we're better off without the sin. He wants to set us free from it. That's what Jesus did with the Samaritan woman at the well. He, he was talking with her. They, they begin this exchange, and he tells her about living water and eternal life and, 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 and this, this unending satisfaction. And she's like, that's amazing. That's what I want. How do I get this? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm all for this eternal life thing. And, and abruptly and surprisingly, he said, go get your husband. And you're like, why is he telling her to get her husband? And it's at that point that we realize, and he, he uh, says to her, to, to make it clear that he knows exactly what's going on, he says, no, you've, you've actually had five husbands, and the person that you're living with right now isn't your husband. He knows if she's going to go forward, she may have all of the good intentions in the world, and she may have all of the, the best hopes that, of, of following Jesus, but there needs to be a recognition of the, the sin in her past, the sin in her present, and without that, those sins will drag upon her. They will hold back what would otherwise have begun with good intentions. Good intentions take on a, a def, different note, a different tone when we recognize we're not alone with them. When we recognize God sees them, and he sees them and he brings them out, not so he can condemn us, but so that he can set us free from them. And when you recognize that, when you see that, it, it changes the way that you interact with those things that we would otherwise want to hide. In light of God's grace, you find confidence, you find courage to bring out and deal with things that you would otherwise never want to face, never be willing to confront. God sees everything. Nothing's secret from him. Nothing can be hidden from him. And, and so if there is anything in your life right now that you would say, I, I just, I don't even, I'm not even willing to admit it's there. I, I'm, I'm kept with a sense of shame, of fear, of 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 just not wanting to deal with that. Hear that God sees that and God finds things out. And in fact, he brings them out into the surface when we're not willing to do so because he doesn't want that to continue to drag upon us and keep us from moving forward with just good intentions, but never following through. 
And so examine your heart for what that might be. Find in his grace, in his goodness, in his intention to free you from your sins. Find the courage to bring it before him, to confess it before him, admit it, admit it to him. Find the courage to share it with someone who can pray for you, who can be God in human flesh to you and speak grace and, and, and accountability and support and, and help in dealing with whatever that might be. So we said that if you're going to follow through when your good intentions are tested, you start by facing what's kept you from following through in the past. Then we said you submit to the God who brings everything to light. Finally, you make it about others, not just about you. Ultimately, if all of your good intentions are ultimately self-focused, about your self-fulfillment or your self just dealing with your guilt or dealing with something inside you, it is seldom enough to help you to follow through. You make it about others, not just about you. Now, when Judah proposed that they sell Joseph into slavery, he was only thinking about himself. This brother is driving me crazy, and the way my father treats him drives me crazy. If I just get rid of them, I'll be happy. It was completely selfish. Now, uh, he has seen the consequences of that selfish act. For 20 years, he has seen his father's grief. He has seen the pain that his selfishness caused his his father, and it has begun to stir something within him. His father's favoritism, unfortunately, hasn't changed. Same father, same attitude, different son. He's gone from Joseph to Benjamin, treating him in exactly the same way. He's had to see, Judah has had to see his younger brother Benjamin get that same royal treatment that God gave to Joseph. But God has taught him to express and feel compassion to his father where before he only felt resentment. In fact, in his speech to Joseph, Judah mentions his father more than a dozen times. Listen as he gives the climax to that speech in verses 30 to 34. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol, to the grave. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I did not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Judah has pledged to take a bullet for his brother Benjamin. And it was a wonderful thing. It's a, it's a good, good intention. It's a good commitment to make. But he's not going to follow through on that commitment just on the basis of how honest he is 
Or he's not going to follow through on this commitment because he just has stellar character. Because we know that he hasn't. He's got a rough past, frankly. It it has helped him to to know that he can't hide. He knows that God's going to bring it out one way or the other, other. So better follow through on this. But even that alone isn't enough of a motivation for him. He'll do it as an act of love towards his father. He'll do it as an act of compassion for someone else. And often it's only as we see our good intentions through the lives of the people that we can impact, the people who are influenced or affected, that we find that motivation to follow through at those times when we would otherwise not do so. Think of some of the good intentions that you might have. Maybe you say to yourself, I'm, I, I think I should serve at the church because well, I, it's something I should do. And, and I heard that announcement. They, I think they need people. If, if it is just your feeling, this is something I should do, and it's only you and your obligation, your good intention probably won't ever be followed through on. Or if it is followed through on, it will do with, with the bare minimum that you can possibly give. It's only as you begin to see, well, this will affect people's lives. My not doing this will, will, will affect other people. This, this is having an impact on the people around me for either good or bad. My decision here has consequences. It's only then that it begins to take on a different weight in your life. And it's the same with the different commitments, the different good intentions that you might have. Who are your good intentions affecting? Your, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, they are affected by your holiness, by your grace by the way that you live and seek to glorify God. It's never just about you and how God feels about you. You've been called to, we've all been called to love our neighbors and and the reality is how we live out the Christian life will affect whether we draw them or repulse them. If you're married, your spouse will likely flourish or wilt on the basis of your faithfulness. Your commitment to God, your commitment to your marriage, your commitment to walking in the grace of God. It's never just about you. If you have children, your your children will be impacted by your holiness or your lack of it. If, If you don't have children and you think you might someday have children, they will ask you about those decisions that you made in, in right, right now. They will look back on the life that you have led and it will either influence them for good or for evil. It has the capacity to, to impact their, their lives, their decisions, their values, and the direction of their life. Nobody wants to see their good intentions wilt on the vine. So be willing to face your past. Recognize God sees it now. 
and he'll bring it out into the light anyway. Sooner or later, it's all going to be unclosed. So cooperate with what he's doing. Be willing to face, face it in, in his grace, in his goodness, with his help, and with the help of maybe another believer that, that could uh, give you uh, the, the prayer and the counsel to walk through it. As you do that, think about the other people who are being influenced, the people that you impact by your decisions, the people who are looking to how you will respond, the people who will be impacted if you decide not to respond, you decide not to follow through. That's what helped Jacob to respond when his good intentions were tested. In verse 33, he did follow through on his good intention. He offered his life for Benjamin's. He offered to serve Joseph all of his life, become his slave essentially, so that Benjamin, the favored one, the one who he should otherwise resent had it not been for the grace of God in his life, he wanted him to return to his father because he knew that it would kill him if he didn't. And as far as he knows, Benjamin's guilty. Maybe Benjamin did steal the cup. But he's going to set him free anyway. He's going to follow through on his commitment. Judah's act of sacrifice here becomes a critical step in the unfolding of God's plan of redemption. Because up until this point, we've seen something similar but different. When Adam and Eve sinned, they felt the incredible shame of their sin, and God provided the covering of animal skins. He substituted an animal to cover their own sin and shame. When, when Abraham was about to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, just at that moment of, uh, uh, that he was about to follow through, God intervened and provided a ram as a substitute. Then all through the Old Testament, every time someone sins, they are bringing their uh, substitute, they're, they're sacrificing an animal saying, I deserve to die for this sin, but God has graciously provided a substitute. Here, something similar is taking place. There is a substitute, but for the first time, a person is saying, I will substitute my life for another. I will become a slave so that he can be set free. I will give up my life so that he can retain his. And so it is not a coincidence that this Judah, it is through his line, through his descendants, that the promise of a savior will come and that Jesus Christ will one day be born. That Jesus Christ will come not to just take the life of one, to, to uh, substitute for the life of one other, but he will come as a substitute for all people. He's the one who said that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And it's through faith in him that people receive new life. And maybe for some of you, that's where you're stuck with your good intentions. You haven't fully trusted in him yet. And so your good intentions are really just you trying harder. 
There's none of his strength, none of his life, none of the Holy Spirit within you, none of his power on your side, none of him working alongside to bring change, to bring follow through, to give you the grace to bring the next step to your good intentions. And so don't hear this message as an opportunity for you just to try harder without looking to the God who came to die for you, to, to take, your, uh, take your place that you might receive that new life that he longs to give. Let's look to him now in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, you know how we need you. We fail so often and we seldom learn from our failures. Keep us from superficial thoughts about change. Help us to be honest with our past and confront the attitudes that hold us down. Remind us that you see everything and you'll bring everything into the light but you always do it to free us. You don't want the sins to continue to weigh on us and keep us back. Help us to remember how much our follow-through affects the people in our lives. And may we keep our eyes on Jesus, who gave everything for us and now calls us to follow him. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen.